Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you on Tuesday, November the 26th. Today, and in the upcoming issue of The Lancet, we publish papers from NATSAL, that is the third British National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyle. And the NATSAL program is no stranger to The Lancet, as NATSAL 2 was published 12 years ago. In NATSAL 3, there are six research articles which give an overview of changes in sexual attitudes and lifestyle throughout the life course and over time. Another paper looks at the risk factors and uptake of interventions for sexually transmitted infections. Unplanned pregnancy is discussed in paper 3. Another paper looks at the importance of sexual function. And the important issue of overall health and how this relates to sexual lifestyles is discussed in another paper. And the final paper for the first time documents the amount of non-volitional sex that is experienced by both men and women. So collectively, it's another fascinating snapshot into sexual attitudes and lifestyles of men and women in Great Britain. In addition to the papers, do look out for a comment pulling all these threads together by the two lead authors of NatSAL, that is Professor Anne Johnson from University College London and Professor Kay Wellings, who is Head of Sexual and Reproductive Health Research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And it is Kay Wellings who I spoke to a few weeks ago, and she is also profiled in this issue. And when I spoke to her, I began by asking her to put NATSOL 3 in context with previous NATSOL programmes 1 and 2. Well, to describe how NATSOL 3 is different from NATSOL 1 and 2, I do need to go through the three NATSALs really, because there's definitely been an evolution of the study from uh, the first. And it's an evolution in scope, I think, uh, in terms of public health scope, but it's also an evolution in terms of uh, our approach to it, in the sense that I think we've become bolder, we've become more confident about what we can include. And those two things go together, because when we started, there was a great deal of anxiety around the study. A study of the general population hadn't been carried out before. There was nervousness about how it would be received by people in all walks of life and all over the country who didn't normally necessarily speak very much about sex in their everyday lives. So there was a bit of self-centering going on in NatSAL 1. And there was also a very narrow scope defined by the need for data in the context of the HIV AIDS epidemic. There were no data for the general population. There were data for particular groups of interest in understanding the epidemic, men who have sex with men, women selling sex, men selling sex, but there were no general population data. NATSAL 1 was absolutely focused on providing data that would aid in the uh, design of interventions to prevent HIV and in exercises to predict the transmission of HIV. So it had a very, very tight focus. But inevitably, we included all sorts of questions about uh, reproductive health because the two go together. We included a lot of questions that, although they had significance in terms of HIV, they also had significance in terms of lots of other uh, health outcomes that rely on sexual behaviour. And so the data set, despite its quite tight aims, had enormous uh, and widespread use by other health professionals and health agencies, schools, sex education, and so on. And so the next time we carried it out in 2000, we deliberately broadened that scope to include reproductive sexual and sexual health, as well as uh, STIs and HIV. We included more questions on family building, on pregnancies, and on issues to do with fertility control, as well as 
sexually transmitted infection control. By the time we came to do NatSal 3, I think we had become emboldened. We'd become more confident by the fact that there's a complete contrast to NatSal 1, where there was a reluctance to fund the study on the part of government. There was a refusal, in fact. But by the time we got to NatSal 3, we had all, all the agencies absolutely enthusiastic about funding it. We became braver, more confident, because people obviously had confidence in us. And the study had achieved not only notoriety, but a degree of... It had lost its notoriety, <laughs> and it had been replaced by respect. In NatSal 3, certainly we had a better idea of what was needed, having done two studies. We certainly had more confidence in being able to be in the driving seat in terms of what we put in. In the first study, for example, we didn't put masturbation in. We self-censored. The qualitative work showed us that people felt uncomfortable with the term, whereas now we would think, OK, they feel uncomfortable, we'll ask it in a way that makes them feel not so. Mm. But then we didn't include the question. And, you know, that's the kind of I think the vicious cycle with research, that where there's, an anxi there's anxiety around something in society, it conveys itself to research, uh, uh, and the researchers think we can't ask about it. They don't ask about it. There are no data. There are no data, therefore it's invisible. So it's a huge vicious yes, cycle. Of course. During the early part of this century, WHO set up a lot of meetings to look at what sexual health was, to really examine how it should be defined. Now, NATSAL is a study very much contextualised in sexual health. It's not a sex survey, mm. it's a sexual health survey. And it provides data for public health purposes, albeit useful in other contexts. And the WHO had been struggling with a definition that included not only the negative outcomes of unplanned pregnancy, STI, HIV, violence, but also sex that was wanted, consensual, satisfying. These also are of public health importance. They're of huge public health importance. Why are those aspects of public health importance? Okay. I, I suspect yes. that's going to be that's the, 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 the more difficult thing it's for people to grasp. It's quite difficult for people to understand, but I suspect there are two reasons why it's difficult to grasp. The first is that we've just got used to the fact that public health is concerned with negative outcomes, which can be cured or treated or prevented. Mm. So pregnancy, you know, clearly contraception, uh, STIs, all the various pharmacological therapies and so on. When you think about it, you lose so much emphasis on sex now that a good deal of people's everyday life is concerned with their sexual relationships and their sexual behaviour, particularly but not exclusively among young people. And what our study and a lot of other studies have shown is that the quality of a sexual relationship, the quality of sexual experience, is related to the stability of that experience. In which way the causal direction is, we're not absolutely sure. But if it leads to serious things like relationship breakdown, then that has knock-on effects in itself. First of all, if it leads to relationship breakdown, then it may lead to a, a sequence of partners. So sexual dysfunction, for example, may lead people to seek partners because their relationship's broken, broken down. And then because they've not had a very good sexual relationship, perhaps it all goes badly for the next one. It can lead to, albeit a serial monogamy, it can lead to the build-up of larger numbers of partners. That in itself has consequences for sexually transmitted infection, but also the quality of a relationship 
is important to people in terms of their, their mental health. I have to go from the numbers here to the qualitative work mm. because, you know, although I like the numbers, although the survey is, um, is fascinating because we can put prevalences and um, distributions on uh, the mass of the population, we actually get a lot of our information from the more fine-grained qualitative work. And so, for example, I have to give you an anecdote here. Um, a young woman I interviewed this last year, in the, cause we now go back, we carry out qualitative work, we go back to people in that cell and ask questions of particular groups. But a young woman I was asking questions about the relationship between her drinking, uh, any drug use, she, did, she actually she didn't use drugs, and her sexual behaviour gave the most harrowing account of her first sexual experience. And at the end of the um, account, she said, I wish I could forget it, but it seems to be on my brain. Now, we can think of STIs and pregnancy as, you know, they're, they're pretty serious things. An unwanted pregnancy can change a life. And an STI may or may not be easy to, to treat. Uh, and some are much more serious than others. But I think we can't forget that aspects of people's lives that are so personal and so poignant also have are of public health interest. And if you think of young people particularly, what we've found in these papers is that older people are not the only ones to um, experience poor sexual function. There are a lot of young people who have poor sexual function. It's generally assumed that you know, young people go into sex that's wanted and pleasurable but the, our work suggests that's not necessarily the case. And this is at a time, often in the teens, when there are exams to do, you know, when there are lots of other things that are really important. And uh, relationship breakdowns and um, difficult sexual experiences that are having a big impact on, on mental health are of great significance in that time period. Is it fair to say that often first sexual experience is quite often a negative experience? Very often a negative experience. And the earlier it occurs, generally, it does seem that the more negative it turns out to be. Um, you know, for example, 50% of young women who have sex before 16 say that, that it was too early for them, subsequently. Again, if I go back to the qualitative work, one young woman told me that if society didn't put quite so much emphasis on it as being a hugely significant thing. She thought that young people wouldn't be so hell-bent on trying to get their experience of it. It seemed to be a, li a little bit like the beans up your noses thing, you know, <laughs> um, but it was such a, a, an, a, such a, a curious thing to do that actually what this young woman, I remember her saying to me, actually it, it was nothing at all, it was just a physical thing. And if that's all it was to her at the time, um, now you might imagine that that's fine because she got it over with and that's maybe what she wanted to do. Is there going to be an answer for what big questions remain, do you think? For me, the big thing that I think we want to do, Anne and I want to do, is to hand on the baton and get an answer for, you know, get the team, the younger, middle-ranking members of the team getting a NATSAL 4 underway. Mm. We did NATSAL 1 and 2, that was a pre and a post. Mm. When you've done 3, mm. you hope it's a series. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you absolutely hope it's a series. The problem is it's, it's expensive, but you know, the census is far more expensive. And sure. you know, we're actually producing a survey that has population-wide import. It has been described as the jewel in the crown, and 
one of the referees said that. So I think it would be really great if it could be kept going both A, as a source of essential information, but B, as a model of methodological excellence, which it has been described as. And do you see in the future, even if you're not involved with it directly, if there are future, future, future naturals, are there, are we going to get answers to questions that still remain vague and cloudy, or is that not possible? It certainly won't include me, but I would, my own aims are um, much more, and I'd like to write um, a much more discursive book about how we've got where we've got now, you know, I can see me sitting at the British Library sort of poring over historical text to see what, how trends have emerged and what the forerunners are for them are and what, you know, that's quite different. But for the Natsal team, you know, I think they have to get bolder. I think we've moved this time to, we now include older people, we include more components of sexual health and we include qualitative as well as quantitative data and we include biological as well as behavioural measures. This is important. We include uh, biological measures not only of pathogens responsible for STIs, mm. but also testosterone. We measure hormones for the first time. Mm. And that's hugely different from NATSAL 1 and 2. And in the future, I think that the team can get bolder still. I think we need to get more interdisciplinary. I think we need to start to answer the sorts of questions that uh, are concerned with motivations and so I think we probably need a psychologist on board and we need to think of different ways of actually gathering those data not simply qualitative and quantitative but maybe diaries maybe longitudinal studies following NATSAL participants over a longer time period. NATSAL 1, 2 and 3 are all cross-sectional studies so nobody from any one survey is asked the questions again in the next one. But the way we can track behaviour over time is to look at changing patterns uh, of the people who represent the cohort they're in. Now ideally, uh, and uh, more ambitiously, what would be absolutely fantastic would be to take people in a trajectory through a, a portion of their lives in order to, to really tease out causality what are the factors that are leading to these kinds of experiences and with what consequences. Many thanks again to Kay Wellings and do look out for all the other Natsal content online and in the upcoming issue. Thanks for listening. See you next time.